After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Please let yourself sit in a way that is comfortable and at ease. And the teachings that are offered are not something particularly to believe or follow, um, but rather something to contemplate or reflect on. Um, And at best, they're reminders of something that you already know, something that's true in your own heart and your own experience. So I'll start and Trudy will follow and then we'll do some kind of a ritual as well. Um, And it was interesting driving up here, um, seeing the almost full moon tomorrow night, the December moon, and getting ready for the solstice that comes in not many days this next week. We had a meeting this morning of much of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and other teachers who teach here. Um, And the conversation was about how Spirit Rock can be and is a sanctuary for people. How it can be a sanctuary in these times um, for um, those those who come here um, and also for others who are are, uh, in danger. and for all who are here tonight, it's such a pleasure to sit together. Um, it becomes a place to quiet the mind and open the heart and listen deeply to what really matters. And as a sanctuary, we welcome everyone, whatever race or orientation or ability or background or caste or creed or whatever, whoever you are, the Dharma gates welcome you. From the very beginning, the teachings of the Buddha, um, they would say, oh, this sage Gautama, he's allowing everyone to join. You know, not just the high caste or whatever it was, but everyone is welcome in the Dharma gates. And I've been traveling, some of it with my beloved, Trudy. Um, I was on the East Coast for a while with my twin brother again, going through as he's going through some of the difficult stages of cancer treatment at Dana-Farber. And it's um, beautiful to see how much care and how great, um, how how, uh, steady and um, devoted the caregivers are um, at the hospitals that he's been in uh, and the cancer centers and all the families that are supporting people. And then we were just also um, leading a retreat together with Ramdas in Hawaii, um, a, a tough assignment. Um, <laughs> and Ramdas is, you know, he's 85, and um, he mostly talks about love. And he has this huge altar at his house that has images of the Buddha and 
Ganesh and Krishna and Shiva and the Dalai Lama and Gandhi and Mother Teresa and, you know, various Indian saints and and uh, sages and and, the, and so forth. And then in the middle, it had been, um, for a while it was Dick Cheney and John Boehner, and now there's a big picture of Donald Trump. He says, I, I love everybody. You know, they're all on my altar and I pray for them all. You know, and it's a beautiful thing. So it's, a be- it's also a beautiful and precious thing to be able to come and practice to have a refuge or a sanctuary where we can steady our hearts, where we can quiet our minds um, and make ourselves peaceful, especially in these, these times. And one of the great um, true stories in Indian history was that the man who became Emperor Ashok of the largest uh, empire in India and those surrounds over the last couple of thousand years um, was a conquering king who had just finished a huge battle conquering the southern part of India, that subcontinent. And he was sitting in his tent, um, looking out over the battlefield afterward, which his troops had won, and he saw so many people who had been killed, including some of his beloved friends and and soldiers. Um, And he saw a monk walking along the edge of the field very peacefully going out for his bowl for his morning alms food. And he said, I who am the emperor of lands that stretch for you know a thousand leagues or miles or whatever they were in every direction and can command anything, have everything at my fingertips, but I don't have the one thing that I see that monk has, which is peace of mind. And so he called the monk over, hey, you know, the emperor wants to talk to you. And it turned out it was a very wise and, and uh, um, compassionate monk who began to give him teachings to say, if you're seeking happiness, happiness won't come from greed. It won't come from hatred and violence. It won't come from ignorance. Um, here are the roots of happiness, generosity, love, care for one another. And he began to give him instructions outwardly and inwardly to, to quiet his mind um, and open his heart. And eventually, Ashok became the most benevolent emperor in that whole thousand-year history of, of India. And there are these pillars, the stone pillars, still all around India that have the edicts which say that everyone should be treated with respect no matter what their birth, everyone of every religion should be respected, um, the, the natural world should be cared for. Um, and these were planted all around his entire empire. And it came because he looked and he saw, all right, I have everything but one thing. I don't have, a, have peace of mind. I don't have a peaceful heart. As it says in the Tao... You have the patience to wait till the mud settles and the water is clear. Can you remain still and unmoving until the right action arises of itself from the heart? And so to come here and sit together um, is an invitation for us to come back and listen more deeply to what matters. And it becomes particularly important in these times of change and these uncertain times. It seems, said the Buddha, that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And I remember very much how my teacher Ajahn Chah would answer lots of the questions that we asked of him with a bit of a twinkle and he'd say, hmm, it's uncertain, isn't it? And you could ask him about all kinds of things. Tell me about enlightenment. And instead of giving some philosophical answer, he'd look and say, hmm, it's uncertain, isn't it? You know, what's going to happen? What should I do? How do I do? He'd say, oh, it's uncertain, isn't it? He wanted us to become comfortable with uncertainty and to see in the traditional language, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, that wherever we look, things are impermanent and in change, if you haven't noticed.
that wherever you look, there is both sukha or pleasure, and there's dukkha. There's loss and trouble and suffering, as well as joy and beauty, and that the world is composed of both, and you can't run away from it and not have it, and that it's not in your control. So then the question is, how do you navigate this particular human incarnation that you get? And when Ajahn Chah brought his first, he was invited to go and start a monastery in England 35 years ago or so, 30 years ago, and brought his first group of Western trained monks um, to this little place that was offered in London and stayed with them for a bit and then left them there. And they were meditating, going out for their alms food and living their life in this community of half dozen people. He came back a year later to visit and he said, how is it going? And they said, oh, it's swimmingly. I guess that's how, what you say in England. Um, it's going, going well. How are you getting? Oh, we're getting along beautifully. It's all going well. And he looked and he said, well, then there's not going to be much wisdom here, is there? You know. Of course, he didn't really believe them either. That's the other part of it. Because the point wasn't to make things easy. Um, but the point is to take the human incarnation that you are given with its joys and its sorrows, with its gain and loss, with the pleasure and pain, and with um, disruptive things and difficult things, and say, how do, I, how do I respond to these? How do I live with them? How do I work with them? Um, a story. Let's see. Maybe a story if I can find it. He came in the evening after my children were asleep, slipping over my fence into the backyard, tapping quietly on the sliding glass door. The first time he arrived this way, I reached for my baseball bat. Then I saw who it was. It's so I won't ruin your reputation, he explained. He knew the neighbors would gossip about a married woman who entertained a man in her home while her husband was overseas in the military. There was no way to explain our unusual friendship to my proper church-going neighbors who watched approvingly during the day as I mowed the grass, washed the car, put up the screens. You manage so well, they said. This rental house in suburban California was just a temporary home. I intended to go back to college as soon as I could. Whether my husband would be included in these plans was still up in the air. He'd been repeatedly unfaithful, and we'd been unhappy for years. My friend, too, was on the brink of making a life-changing decision. While he and I folded my little girl's laundry, emptied the dishwasher, cooked dinner, we talked for hours, the lies we chose in our secret dreams. He spent Halloween with my girls and me, carrying the flashlight while the kids went trick-or-treating. Thanksgiving, he carved the turkey. My girls missed their father, and this kind, respectful man listened to them, laughed with them, and read them stories. One night, my next-door neighbor saw my friend arriving through the backyard, and he forbade his wife to speak to me after that. Then my across-the-street neighbor snubbed me at the supermarket. She'd obviously been talked to. I wish there were a way to explain that I decided to get a divorce and would soon be going back to college on a scholarship, or that my friend was a Catholic priest who had spent the last 20 years in a monastery and now intended to leave the priesthood and live openly as a gay man. How do we understand one another? We're so quick to judge other people, and of course we judge ourselves too. We can be so harsh on ourselves. And perhaps when we quiet the mind and open the heart, when we begin to practice in the way that we do, the most important thing is that we can begin to listen. Listen to ourselves, but also listen to others. However they voted, how, wherever they live, whatever they look like, to their fears and hopes and concerns and vulnerability and tenderness and humanity. Because it's our common humanity, that famous poem from Thich Nhat Hanh, Call Me By My True Names, 
that everyone knows, you know, I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I'm the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I'm the death arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm all of these, when he says, when I see this. Please call me by my true names so that I can hear my cries and laughter at once. My joys and pain are one, so that I can wake up and open the door of my heart, the door of compassion. So it's not like it's somebody else. It's humanity. It's us, and we're born into this. This is our family. We begin to listen. We begin to pay attention with respect. And then somehow, as we quiet ourselves and steady the heart, we have to live or stand up for what is true, what we know to be true in the deepest way in ourself. The word dharma means truth, means the universal law. It's not like you have to become a Buddhist, spare your friends and family, you know. It's the Dharma as that which is the way things are in this, in this world. And that Dharma says hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. That Dharma says in the face of fear and questions about immigration, or healthcare, or Black Lives Matter, or the poorest people, or, or, or uh, Muslims, and so forth, that every human being um, is born with an innate dignity and Buddha nature, and each one is a worthy being, every single one. That Dharma says that hatred and greed and ignorance lead to suffering. Not even a lot of judgment about it, just a Cool analysis. This is how it works. And the opposites, generosity, love, care, wisdom, clarity, leads to well-being. What will you practice? We are each endowed with the capacity to awaken. Said the Buddha, if it were not possible for you to awaken, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you to live a life with dignity and care and compassion, the great heart of compassion that's born in you, because it is possible for you, I teach you how to do so. And this is really what he called the great miracle of all, that this is born into us as human beings, individually and collectively. In the last year of his life, there's a whole compendium of his final teachings. He was asked about a wise society. And I've read this at other times in the last year or two because it was something that I got to read at the first Buddhist White House leadership gathering a year and a half ago or so. Um, I'm not sure how many more there'll be right now, but <laughs> leave that aside. Um, but the Buddha was asked about uh, a wise society in particular um, and he, he, he responded this was to a chief minister he talked to kings and ministers and princes and cabinet members and so forth and he said here is the question do the members of that community meet regularly in harmony discuss and depart in harmony and treat one another respectfully. If so, then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. Do they follow and honor the wisdom and traditions of their elders in the past? Do they tend and care for the natural world around them? Do they care for the women, the children, and the most vulnerable among them? Then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. Do they foster mindfulness and loving-kindness in their society? 
then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. Injustice, racism, war, they're not something new. They're the source of enormous suffering, but they're not the end of the story. They are not. Says Mark Twain, kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And the end of the story is that it's possible for us as human beings to transform our own heart and mind. And we come together in that spirit you look up here at these images, statues. There were no Buddha images for 500 years. The Buddha didn't want any statues. And the only images there were were a wheel or a deer or some kind of nature images, a tree. Um, the very first images of the Buddha looked like Apollo. They were copies of Greek gods, but with a little bit of a Buddhist twang to them or something like that. But this one, which comes from Thailand, the one that's behind me, there's Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion behind Trudy, has her back there. Um, and the Buddha that's behind me has one hand, his right hand down, touching the earth, which is a symbol of um, the night of enlightenment, uh, seated under the Bodhi tree when the Buddha, in the myth or the story, um, vowed to sit there and not move until he'd awakened a freedom beyond all space and time. One of those little vows, anyway. Um, and then he was attacked by the armies of Mara, Mara being in the Indian mythology, the god who represents all the struggles and difficulties uh, that um, there are in the world. And the Mara came in the form of temptations, of every possible temptation, and Mara came in the form of aggression, um, our spears and arrows and flaming, uh, flaming arrows. And each time the Buddha would just raise his hand and touch the weapons that came at him with the heart of compassion and they would turn to flower petals and drop at his feet. And finally Mara said, by what right do you have to sit here and awaken? So the last of the difficulties was doubt. The doubt of yourself. What right do you have in this earthly human realm to awaken. And then the Buddha reached down in the story, the myth as it's told, and said, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness that I have dedicated this life, and if one likes the bigger story, many, many lives, to compassion, to patience, to uh, care for another, to truthfulness, to integrity, uh, to steadiness of heart. The earth is my witness that it is the, the possibility and the birthright of human beings to awaken. And with that, the goddess of the earth, as the myth is told, rose up and out of her hair came this great shower of water, this great waterfall that washed Mara and the armies of Mara away. And then the Buddha sat very peacefully until the morning star just there on the horizon and then he was awakened. Something like that. So when I say, as we sit, that you sit under your own Bodhi tree, you have Mara. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, no Mara, no Buddha, right? You need Mara. Mara's part of the plot, right? Mara's in there. Um, but Mara invites you to touch the earth, to say, yes, I see you, Mara. I see who you are. I see this. And to trust that there is another reality in your own heart that is great that is beyond the forces of Mara. And what we learn and practice in the most beautiful way is to trust. And it doesn't mean every sitting or every week or practice or something is, you know, glorious. Sometimes it's not. It hurts and you're doubting and you're judging and you do all the kind of weird things you do in there. I know you do. You look good, but it's not, you know. And I tell the story of meeting this guy in the Miami airport who... Um, came up to me, I was traveling to some retreat, and he said, Jack, is that you? I said, yeah. He said, you're, 
do you remember I sat the three-month retreat with you in 1982? <laughs> you know, and I kind of vaguely remember this. He said, well, I feel like I was a kind of a failed student because I practiced for a while and then I, you know, I built a business and I had a couple kids and I got involved in all kinds of other things and I didn't meditate and I really felt after some years that I'd fallen away that I was a failure. He said, but last year um, I had a heart attack and um, as I was being wheeled into surgery and the gurney and getting prepped, he said, it all came back to me. He said, I knew how to steady myself. I knew how to come to my breath. I knew how to make space for the fear and all the things. He said, it was amazing. It was all there. He said, so I thought I was a failure, but thank you. You know, I'm sorry to say it's too late for you. The fact that you come into this room means that some part of you that knows that it's possible to live in an awake and compassionate freeway has all, already started to awaken and, you know, too bad, you know, it's, it's in you, it's happening. So there's something that you can trust, but it's not just a personal trust in some way, there's also something much deeper. Um, Dina Metzger, poet, friend, writes, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again. And there are these vast cycles of time, as well as the limited ones. So Gandhi says, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the ways of truth and love have always won. Yes, there have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it always, always. And so sometimes... What's needed is both the trust in your own heart and also a trust in the broader cycles of humanity. We have less slavery than we did 100 and 200 and 300 years ago. It's got less and less and less. And even though women are not treated as they should be in many places and parts of the world, still it has improved over the centuries. And even though there are children who are badly treated, still the lot of children has gotten better and better. And it goes up and down, and there are all these cycles. But it's something that we are learning that's possible for us. And there's this beautiful story that uh, Barbara Kingsolver tells of the Lori, Lori people who are in the mountains of Central Asia um, and they're nomadic people and they were about to come down with their flock or their herds from the high mountains, fall was coming and one of the young children who was um, 10 years old was in charge of taking care of the little ones and she turned away, somehow she had her little flock of children and all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the boys, a toddler, 16, 18 months, just learned to walk and disappeared. And she ran all over and couldn't find him and ran back to the village and said, I can't find him. Is he back here? Did he come back? No one had seen him. They all got upset. They started looking. They looked under everything in every house. They, looked. they couldn't find. The parents were, as you can imagine, completely alarmed. It got dark. They couldn't find the child. The next, they got their lights, they looked as best as they could the next morning, they went and looked further and then someone said that they'd heard that there was a bear in the vicinity that day before. So everyone got really frightened. Ah. And so the men of the village got themselves ready and took some torches and went up into the woods. How could he walk? Maybe something happened to him. Um, and in the, in the trees above there was a series of caves. And it was the third or fourth or tenth cave. They were searching. Nobody knows. And they heard a voice, a cry, a child. And they look in the darkness and ominously they smelled bear. 
But the boy was in there crying, alive. And they moved into the half light of the cave and they saw this animal against the wall. Huge, thick-furred she-bear. And then they saw the child. And with sounds and gestures and torches, fiery torches, they somehow scared the bear out of the cave. And they rushed in, praising Allah, and grabbed this child. She says, I've searched for more of the story, what happened to the bear, but I can go no further because I don't read Arabic or Farsi or their language. But this is not a mistake. It's not a hoax. It happened. The baby was found with the bear in the den. He was alive, unscarred, and perfectly well after two and a half days and well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. So what does this mean? How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than tear him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she might have lost her own young somewhere. And so she was driven by the pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. You could read this story and declare impossible, even though many witnesses swore it was true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places and think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love, the fact of the DNA code that we share in great majority with other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk. Small wonder. There is something in us um, that is designed to care for one another. And we can lose sight of it in big systems and in political ways and economic ways. And it can be quite destructive and has over, over history. But there's something even deeper than that, which is the love that connects us and this earth and human beings. And this is really what's trustworthy. So we're in the time of the solstice and the turning of the seasons. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. And the mythology is that the humans help the sun come back by lighting your candles, by celebrating in the way that you do, you somehow invite out of the darkness the light to begin to return. And arch archetypally, humans are, are called the make-weight. Um, remember those scales, the way people used to uh, measure things? There would be a balance scale, and there were those, those weights you'd put on one side, and then you'd weigh whatever the commodity was on the other. And if you see the fancy sets of weights, they're little turtles or rabbits or animals, uh, all made out of, you know, some heavy metal. Well, it turns out the scales of the universe are closely balanced between good and evil or between destruction and creation. And in this myth, mythological way of understanding, human beings are one of those little weights. But we're the little weight that when it's placed on one side of the scale or the other is the one that tips the balance. And so that is what's given to you. From Mary Oliver, our great poet laureate, really. She writes about the Buddha's last instructions. I think of the Buddha every morning as the east begins to tear off its clouds of darkness and send up a signal white fan streaked with pink and violet. An old man, he lay down between the two sal trees. He might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head and looked into the face of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, he said. As his last words, make of yourself a light. 
And so in this time of solstice, in this turning of the seasons, you are invited to become that light that shines in the world. Whatever your background or views or wherever you come from, you can carry something beautiful into this world. And it's said that not in the sky, nor in the midst of the ocean, nor the highest mountain cave can one escape the consequences of one deeds, one's deeds. And not in the sky or the mid-ocean or the highest mountains will the seeds that are planted not bear fruit. If you plant beautiful seeds, if you plant something, even in the season of no light of the darkness, if you plant the bulbs and the seeds and tend them as we do, something beautiful will come. And to quiet ourselves and to sit together and to reflect in this way, it's not a grim duty. It's really a joy what seeds you will plant. Thank you, Jack. You're welcome, Trudy. It was beautiful, wasn't it? Your turn. I love to listen to him <laughs> teach. I don't really love going after him, but uh, <laughs> uh, I just want to welcome you all and welcome myself to being here. This is my first time teaching in this beautiful new hall. Um, and actually haven't taught this Monday night for many, many years. So it's a pleasure to be here and to be here with Jack and all of you. Um, when I was listening to Jack talk about um, those little weights that are the, us, the humans, that can tip the balance one way or another, um, I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you tonight. Uh, somebody had come up and say, asked me, um, have you had a lot of travels? And I said, yes. And, said, and did you take Jack with you? And I said, yes. We went together to Maui to teach with Ram Dass in beautiful, beautiful Hawaii. But before that, I was in Africa, uh, in the heart of Africa, and I didn't take Jack with me on this trip. It was not a very safe trip at all. Um, but I was in eastern Chad. Chad, I didn't know, but if you don't know exactly where it is, it's really right in the middle. Um, Nigeria, Niger, Libya, um, Sudan. <laughs> Sudan, lots of it. Uh, Cameroon, Central African Republic. Anyway, it's right in the middle. And I was uh, in a Darfuri refugee camp called Gozamir, which is less than an hour um, from Darfur, from Sudan. Uh, there's just a highway that is actually just a big, wide dirt road. It's not even passable in the rainy season, which is the highway to Sudan. And I happened to be there because I was invited by a very tiny nonprofit, but it's really tipping the balance of life in this camp in a beautiful way. It's called IACT, small i and then big A-C-T, and their website is iactivism.org. Tiny team of people. And I resonated with the founder, the director, who felt he had done nothing during the genocide of Rwanda. And so when Darfur happened, he just went with a webcam and he interviewed refugees and he asked them what they want, which is, it seems common sense, doesn't it? But it's actually not the way most of the refugee organizations work. He asked, what would help you most? And they said, we want soccer and we want preschool. Right, who'd have thought that? Well, soccer makes sense, right? Feel part of the rest of the world. But preschool, because the young children take care of the younger children, and the parents are off foraging for whatever they can find, you know, twigs to build their huts, grass. I mean, it's, it's really hard life um, in a subsistence part of Africa where 
The villages are small, there's grass huts, there's lots of space between them usually because the land doesn't support that many cows or people. And suddenly there's this huge influx of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from Darfur years ago. And they're still there in 12 camps along the border. So I have felt, like many of you, I'm sure, especially recently this past year, and I know some of you have gone to work with the Syrian refugees in Greece, I've felt a kind of um, helplessness and almost despair just hearing this constant news of people like us having to flee and picture you know, come here on a Monday night, you've left your house, and suddenly you can never go home, and you just have what you have, and that's it for, talk about uncertainty, for an uncertain number of years. People with families, people... So I was, when I this opportunity arose to go, and it came because I have a background in early childhood education earlier in my life, um, I started a school for, uh, we, we used to call them severely emotionally disturbed, but we don't say that anymore. We say dysregulated, we say special needs, we say more merciful, hopeful kinds of things that make more sense. Um, but I have a background of starting that preschool and working with those kids and studying and so forth. And they were looking for somebody who could teach mindfulness help the preschool program that they set up in the camps help them integrate mindfulness into the curriculum. And so, as a teacher of mindfulness with a background in early childhood education, I brought an assistant teacher who sits here, Jocelyn Hitter. I mistakenly thought she had a background in working with kids, and she didn't, but she'd been to Africa a lot, which was very helpful to me, who had never been there. And my first day, I was in kind of shock. Uh, but she wasn't, so it was fine. Um, but I just want to share with you, first of all, the incredible juxtaposition of going from being in a place where people are malnourished chronically, there is not enough food in any of the camps. In each camp, there are about 30,000 people who live there, they have organized it so democratically and so carefully by neighborhood. Each neighborhood has a representative and a leader and then five main leaders in the camp. They've done it so that the resources are divided fairly. There are no homeless people. Nobody eats alone. It's really different from our culture here, actually. These, uh, the tribal values of generosity and hospitality are very much alive and well, even in these um, just bare subsistence circumstances. The juxtaposition of going from working and being in a place like this to being at the retreat in Maui with so much, this buffet full of so much food like here at Spirit Rock, with electricity, with running water, with Wi-Fi, with air conditioning if you need it, with fans, with just comfort piled upon comfort piled upon. We take all this for granted. And to be in a place where we, hadn't, we just didn't have comforts like that, and we never knew... We were staying in a little UN compound with lots of barbed wire and guards. It's not a safe place at all where we were. And we couldn't stay in the camp. Um, but there was no reliable anything. So we were so grateful for the trickle of water or the time that the air conditioning went on. <laughs> the heat was so intense. And yet, we were there to teach mindfulness to the preschool teachers and the soccer coaches. They're all young people. They're all totally traumatized because anybody over the age of 15, well, 13 really, has seen, witnessed unspeakable atrocities or had them done to them. So how, I mean, mindfulness, I kept thinking, 
when I would have moments of doubt, as Jack was talking about, doubt is the slipperiest of those hindrances to our being fully present. And I would wonder, mindfulness is not at the top of the hierarchy of needs here. How can we help? But it turns out that we really were able to help. And the first way is through what we're all practicing here, the ability to be very simply present, to be attentive, to listen. We've listened to ourselves enough that we know how to listen to others with a little less judgment, a little more compassion. And it turns out that, and we all know this, being the recipient of that kind of attention that is interested and fully present. I mean, infants have sonar for this. They fuss when you're not there. Uh, kids would rather have you know, terrible attention than none at all. So it turns out that our just bearing witness and listening to people's stories and obviously being moved by their stories. And they knew we cared enough. To, it takes a long time to get there. You have to travel on these little humanitarian planes and you land on little dirt airstrips and you have to listen to the plane voice, which is female, even though the pilots are male, saying as you get close to the ground, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. <laughs> and you're thinking... I know the African pilots are so skilled, <laughs> but is there an airstrip? <laughs> which you don't know until the last minute if it's your first flight, which was for me, obviously. So it turns out that ability to be interested, our simple loving presence, um, counts for a lot. And teaching people how to bring their minds back from, say, a flashback, because traumatized people are constantly having flashbacks. Some of you, unfortunately, know this from your own experience, that to be able to bring the mind back to the simple reality of what's here, we don't go inside, but we look at just what's here, the touch points of the body with the chair, what we see, what we hear in the present moment, um, the fact that we're being quiet and all of us are together. We come to this moment and we're safe for now. Nobody there can tell their children, now you're safe. Because they're not, for sure. They're safe for now. And in some way, that's how we all are, right? We're safe for now. And... As we mature, all of us, in our practice of mindfulness and compassion, we just can't see the world the way we used to, maybe, when we were able to ignore more of reality. We really see that when one person is hungry, we're not separate from that hungry person. You know, when one person is homeless, that we feel that. When one person is a refugee, we're not separate from the refugees. And I feel that that, and I think you do too, or you wouldn't be here. A part of us is then hungry. A part of us is homeless. A part of us is also a refugee. And we realize more and more our intimate connection, our belonging to life. And, you know, just like the breeze belongs to the wind or a wave belongs to the ocean. We belong to life. And when we belong and feel our belonging to the world in this way, how can we not want to be of benefit in some way, to be that little weight that tips the balance? And, you know, obviously not, it's not everybody is called to travel that far and go someplace like that. Um, I felt very fortunate to have met the people and fallen in love with this small team of people and decided to join them. But I kept feeling while I was in the camp, if everybody did one small thing, 
we wouldn't have hunger in the world. We wouldn't have all these refugees if we all, whatever according to our talents or skills or interests or affections or karmic affinities, if we could find one small thing to do. Um, Jack, how much time do I have? So much you'd love more time if you want. Yeah, but how much? 10, 10, 10, 15. I mean, when do we end is what I'm really asking. Oh, yeah, because we have to do our ritual. At least another, take 10 more minutes, okay? Oh, yeah. Go thank ahead. you. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, thank you. Um, yeah, whatever you do, you know, we, we all belong to life and we can all express our love and and the goodness of our practice in some, in some small way. And when I was there, um, one of the great joys was uh, to teach the teachers some games. And I want to give a shout out to my friend Susan Kaiser Greenland, who just, uh, she wrote a book called The Mindful Child. And her second book, which is called Mindful Games, just came out at Thanksgiving. And she very generously let us use, before the book had even come out, um, some of the games that uh, she teaches for kids. And we want to share them with the teachers and the coaches, that they could do them with the kids in their um, classes. And one of the games that we taught, and, and you have to understand that for these young teachers and young coaches, just to be able to play is so much fun. There aren't that many opportunities for them to play. The young women, most of them have babies, they go home, they have to somehow make whatever food there is last and grind whatever flour there is and carry water. So much time spent hauling water, huge things of water on their heads and swinging their arms and walking so gracefully and elegantly with these huge bidons of water on their heads. Um, I said I want to learn how to do it, and our translator said, you can't. You can't. You are not strong enough. You can't. Um, but one of the games that we taught was... Um, it's kind of like an icebreaker at the beginning of a class. We could picture us playing it. Like we'd be sitting in one big circle and we have a ball. The kids don't have balls, but we have brought balls for the classrooms and for the soccer coaches. Uh, we could choose games to use that didn't require any props, not even a raisin, because you don't have anything there. So we would roll the ball across, let's say I would roll it across to Simon, and then you mindfully report what's happening in your mind, what's happening in your body. So I would roll the ball to somebody, say Zainab, and she would say, my mind is happy, but my body has a fever. And then she would roll the ball across to somebody else, maybe Fatima, who would say, my mind is happy, but my body is tired and achy. And it just went like this. Almost everybody reported that they were happy to be there, happy. But they also reported that they had fevers, that they had malaria, that they had... And there they were, showing up to teach the kids every day so much resilience and so much grace. I found it inspiring. It really... It really helped me think of days when I wake up and don't feel like doing something. <laughs> Even though I'm fine, you know those days. We have those days. And it turns out nobody has, because nobody has enough to eat, um, they said, because I, I said to the interpreter, how can they go and teach and how can they show up in the morning with all these kids? And He said, well, we have to because nobody has seven days in a row of feeling well. That doesn't happen because there isn't enough food. And because if you get malaria, you have to have money to be able to get medicine. And one of our teachers said in the circle, she said, this summer I was so happy. I was given the gift of twin girls, born 
to me. And I fell in love with them. I was so happy. And then in the fall, they got malaria and they died. And she said, and my happiness went away. This is preventable. This is curable. This doesn't need to be happening anywhere in the world. So I felt um, so much sadness at times and yet so much gratitude that we could be there. The children who are in the programs, they get some food. They look so different from the other children in the camps, um, in the camp. And they have such a fair, equitable system of choosing who gets to be in these classes. And the classes with the support of people like you and me are going to grow. And the program is called Little Ripples, and it's going to ripple out and spread to other camps. And other refugee camps are interested, and they want to know, what about mindfulness with refugee populations? What about preschools that are refugee-led, that aren't you know, coming from, brought in from outside? What about this? Um, For me, I felt no separation. I would look at a little girl in her frayed, raggedy pink dress and become that child. That's what our practice allows us to do. Sometimes it's called exchanging self for other. But we can really listen deeply and become, have some sense of what it is like to be each other. And... Again, it's that simple presence. And in that presence, there's in that melting away of separation, there's just the little girl, the intense psychedelic heat around us, the flies that come to drink at the corners of your eyes where it's moist, or to try to get up in the nostrils where there might be a little moisture too. And all of it so vivid and bright and so sacred, really, to witness this different kind of human life in this different kind of place and wonder, how can we even be in the same world? How is it possible that we are sharing a world where we could be one moment amid such beautiful, beautiful affluence and nature in Hawaii, and, before, and knowing all the while that the refugees are still there. They're still there, living this very um, difficult, challenging life, and responding to every bit of loving awareness and loving attention and interest that tells them they haven't been completely forgotten, even though Darfur is no longer in the news, and uh, the international community hasn't made it safe for anyone to go home. It's not possible. But I want to, I've been reminding myself and reminding Jack and everywhere that I am that, well, I'll just tell a quick story, that the teachers, when we, we taught them the games, and then at the end we had a contest, and they had to divide into teams, and their job was to play the games, in such a way that showed that they understood the mindfulness principles behind each game. So they chose the names for their teams, um, and they chose the lions and the intelligent people. Those were the two teams. And then each team took turns demonstrating each of the exercises that we had taught, and it was beautiful. And in the end, um, Actually, the lions won. They had a more competitive spirit. They were hiding their discussions and deliberations from the intelligent people. The intelligent people, they sighed. They were, you know, a little dismayed, but they accepted it with grace. They did. And then I thought about, this happened right around the time of the election. I was there um, when the election happened, and the Africans are worried about what the consequences will be for them. Will they still get funding to get any food? What will this mean for them? They laugh at our shock and dismay because they said, you know, we've had 
leaders like this, I mean, leaders like what this might be. Um, we don't know. Uh, they kind of laughed at our dismay, but ruefully. Um, and then they reminded us, you know, your country is not Sudan. Your leader is not al-Bashir. This is a good thing to be reminded of. The intelligent people, you know, some of us consider ourselves, with our vote, the intelligent people. We were very dismayed when we lost the contest. And whatever side of this election you were on, um, yeah, whatever way that you felt called um, to cast your vote, and however you feel about the results of what happened, um, from the perspective of our mindfulness and our loving awareness, Whatever unmasks what we need to learn, whatever unmasks our own biases and prejudices, whatever shows us where we were deluded um, and unclear, uh, this is actually something to be welcomed and to be learned from. I was struck, of course, it was a fun, it was just a fun contest, but I was struck with the graciousness and grace of the refugees every step of the way and felt we have so much to learn. Uh, and may we include in our loving awareness everyone who needs care and protection and all the parts of ourselves uh, for decades, I practiced Zen, and we had um, these vows to be helpers in the world, to be that weight that tips the world toward goodness, even though we never know exactly the results of our actions. We have that intention to tip the weight that way. And the first line of uh, these vows is, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all is the usual translation. But another translation is, I vow to free them all. And that means freeing the many beings who reside in our own hearts. How do we free them? We really free by allowing them to be as they are, who they are. Think of what a freedom that would be for each other. Genocides would never happen. The people in Darfur wouldn't have been killed and persecuted for the color of their skin, which is darker than the northern Muslims who essentially um, conquered them or drove them out of their land. Uh, to be able to free each other, to be just as we are, to be able to accept all of who we are, in loving awareness. Uh, this is our work in the practice. And um, I'm always so inspired by people, all of you, people who come to our center in Los Angeles, inside LA, who come to practice and to grow, in, to grow the capacity to love, to grow in wisdom and compassion. Um, I'm always inspired, and I thank you. I thank you for your practice of, you know, whatever you're doing to cherish and protect the earth and your life and the people around you. Really, thank you for that, because, you know, we all belong in this clear wakefulness, this vivid experience of presence in the reality that we share. So thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be here with your beloved Jack. Uh, I'd love to share my beloved with you. Um, and really happy to get to teach with you tonight. Before we go tonight, in India when you meet someone, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and gesture of respect and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see the secret beauty, the, the spirit that was born into you. And the root of the word namaste is in Sanskrit and Pali the word namo, which begins most Buddhist texts. It means to bow to or pay respects or honor. 
So I want us to chant Namo nine times. And as you do, feel what it is that you've dedicated yourself to in your blessing protection cord. Um, sense the spirit of those around you. Bow to the earth as a protector of all life in whatever way seems right to you. And imagine as you offer these nine namos that you're also offering a bow to whatever matters to you or whoever needs support or whoever needs love in this world. Um, and then we'll go out into the, into the just about winter evening. harmony of our words and song together in Namo, the gesture of respect, spread from ourselves to one another and across the earth so that our words and deeds join as seeds, as beautiful waves, as something that spreads from us to bring blessings and care, respect, dignity to all life. May it be so, and may you all have a wonderful solstice, Christmas, Kwanzaa, New Year, Hanukkah, happy everything. Thank you, and good night. Thank you, Trudy, dear. Thank you, Jack.